to me. Um, I'm here because your pastor asked me to come and to speak with regards to the Jewish Roots Movement or the Hebrew Roots Movement. They go interchangeably by name, uh, which is a, a movement within the wider church that has uh, come to uh, um, be in, you know, a lot of people in various churches have started to get involved in what we call this Jewish Roots Movement. And to say the Jewish Roots Movement is um, um, one specific movement, it, it isn't. It's like the New Age Movement. Uh, it's composed of many different faces, many different ways in which uh, this thing is sort of interpreted, but there is some general understanding. Let's just, uh, for a moment, if we could, just pray a little bit uh, before we start as we're entering into looking into the word of the Lord, which I'm hope it, which really is where we determine what is sound and what is not sound. And then from there, we will, uh, we will look at some scripture and then we will talk about our subject. If uh, you would uh, bow your heads with me. That would be great. Almighty Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we are able to look into your word and know who you are. Know what you have planned in our lives and for our lives and to know what you have planned for the history of the world. We have the ability to see that you are a faithful God, a God who promises and a God who fulfills promises. And uh, even to, to this evening, as we look at uh, uh, your word, may we see the faithfulness of God and how we can better be faithful to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say, Amen. I was, uh, when I was many years ago, I came to faith in 1998, uh, and sometime in the next year, in 1999, I was on the subway and I was reading my Bible. And a bunch of people got on the subway and they were looking at me reading the Bible and uh, asking about it. And I told them that I was a Jewish believer in Jesus in the midst of the conversation. And they said, well, oh, we, our church worships like first century Jews. And I didn't know what to make of that. I mean, I was a fairly new Christian and it, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. But afterwards I thought about it and I said, how can you worship like first century Jews? And I was looking through this and realized you can't worship as first century Jews. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but these people were from what is called the Church of God, which is one of those churches that sort of have uh, plugged themselves into the, the uh, Jewish roots movement. I'd like to start by reading three passages of scripture. We're gonna go through a lot of scripture, so um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll proclaim them, but sometime you might want to be running through. We'll do our sword drills. You know what sword drills are? Yeah, okay. The first one uh, is Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. And in that, and I'd like to say, I was reading this passage when God revealed to me who Jesus was. It was this passage that God used in my life to bring me to Christ. And he said this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their inequity, and I will remember their sin no more. Almost immediately when I read this, and I said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, the God just popped the, the, the realization in. Oh, Jesus is the new covenant. And it was then that I knew through the power of the Holy Spirit informing me who Jesus was. The next passage I'd like to look at is a passage in Matthew chapter 5 in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. And we read this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then the final passage is in James, the epistle uh, by James, chapter 2. And verses 8 to 11. James chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. And James writes this. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the royal law he's talking about. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I've gone a little... Yeah. What is the Hebrew Roots Movement? I want you to keep these passages in mind, but let's first talk about what is the Hebrew Roots Movement. And like I said, like the New Age Movement, do you know what the New Age Movement is? It's a spirituality that has come from primarily from Eastern philosophies, uh, from Buddhism and Taoism and all that stuff. And uh, people have sort of changed it. Uh, yoga is a big part of New Ageism. They've brought in Kabbalah into New Ageism. And it really is 
a, um, a type of spirituality that relates to the fact that I can bring myself to be one with the divine. But there's all kinds of New Age movements, and there's all kinds of people. I mean, I, I, I said that I was into the New Age when I uh, uh, sent my, my little bio to uh, my brother uh, Viji here, but, uh, you know, my New Ageism probably was different than many other New Age people because it was my own personal viewpoint, and there's a lot of that that goes on. And it's the same with the Hebrew Roots movement. There's not just one phase. People take various aspects based on an idea. And the idea is this, that we believe in Christ, but focus on the law. And when they say the law, they mean the law that is found in the five books of Moses, the legal issues that are found there. We focus on law as a measure of observance and faith. So they don't deny Christ as Messiah, although some have gone from the Hebrew Roots movement on to then deny Jesus as Messiah. But for the great part of it, they they will accept Jesus as the Messiah, but they then focus on the law as the measure of observance and faith. They have some regard for the Talmud, the Talmud being the uh, oral law that was later written down to, uh, and, and from which many, many legal issues arise within current rabbinic Judaism. They insist that we should celebrate the Sabbaths, the Sabbath as opposed to the Lord's Day. They insist that we should celebrate the feasts and not celebrate Christmas and Easter. They insist that we should keep the dietary laws. Now, not everybody is as insistent. Some insist on even more law observance, some maybe less. But that's basically where the Hebrew root movement goes. And to the extreme, there are those who would say that if you do not observe Torah, in in other words, if you don't observe the laws of the five books of Moses, that's the Torah, you have not really come to a proper faith in Jesus Christ. That's the extreme of it. And we have to ask ourselves, are they right? Is this correct? Is this the way to be? Is this a correct viewpoint of the scriptures? My response to that is to go through some of these issues that they are insistent on and see how we can scripturally look at it in light of the new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, I, I know that in the law, in the five books of Moses, the covenant, there was covenant provision for atonement. And the atonement was gained by repentance and by taking a sacrifice and bringing it to the temple and having that sacrifice, uh, the, the blood be poured on the, on the altar And that would be a covering of my sin, and I would have atonement. But when Jesus came, and he died on the cross for our sins, that moment when Jesus said it was finished, and he died, 
suddenly Jesus became the atoning sacrifice. He was it. And when I come to faith in Jesus Christ, I have atonement for my sins. Not just the sins of yesterday, but the sins of today and the sins of tomorrow. I have a once and for all sacrifice. As the writer of Hebrews says, the, the sins, the yearly giving of bulls and, and, and goats and sheep is not going to really deal with the sin issue. It was that once and for all sacrifice. And now I have atonement 24-7. Amen? 24-7. Well, I would suggest that that is true with the Sabbath. Because as the writer of Hebrews says of Jesus, he is our Sabbath rest. He fulfilled the law. And that includes the Sabbath. And as the fulfillment of the Sabbath, I know now in him have Sabbath 24-7. And very early in the church history, we will see that the, the people got together on the first day of the week to hear Scripture, to read the Word. Now, we've got to remember that we are told that the early church met every day. Okay? But there was this special time. You can see it in Acts chapter uh, 20. In Acts chapter 20, it's the one time we see Paul preaching with the body of Christ. Now, we know that Paul went into the synagogue on the Shabbat, but every time in the book of Acts that it talks about that, it reminds us that he went there and he shared about the good news. It was an evangelistic purpose. Doesn't mean he didn't want to go as well to worship, but in the synagogue, he could not worship in spirit and in truth because the synagogue didn't accept Christ as Lord. But in Acts 20, we see... uh, Did I get it wrong? Sorry? Uh, yes, there it is, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. And we know that he was later uh, raised by Paul uh, and uh, brought back to life. So here we are. It's the first day the church is gathered together to break bed to hear Paul preach. It's a service on the first day. Now, he preaches until midnight. So the truth of the matter is he wasn't preaching on a Sunday morning. He was preaching on a Saturday night. Because for the Jewish people, the Sabbath began after sundown on Saturday, or ended at sundown on Saturday. So the first day began sundown on Saturday. But he wasn't preaching on the Sabbath. He was evangelizing on the Sabbath because, let's face it, the synagogue is where Jewish people are. And that's where he went. 
Now, Sabbath is one of all the feasts that are mentioned in Leviticus 23. And if you ever went to Leviticus 23, and I'm not going to read it, we don't have time, but you have all the feasts of Israel discussed in Leviticus 23. That includes the Sabbath, which is the one weekly feast, and the rest are annual feasts, but uh, it includes all the feasts that are related to the Passover, uh, Pentecost, which in Hebrew is Shavuot, um, Rosh Hashanah, well, what is now called Rosh Hashanah, but in the Bible it's called the Feast of Trumpets, or Yom Teruah, uh, the um, 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 Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and finally the day, uh, Feast of Tabernacle, or Sukkot. These are all in Leviticus 23, and the Sabbath is included in this. And, you know, going to these feasts, along with the Sabbath, all of these were focused at the temple. It was at the temple that these feasts had to be uh, uh, celebrated. In the Bible, it says, God says, I'm gonna, there's, you're going to do these things in the place where I put my name. And that was in Jerusalem, on Mount Sinai, where the temple was. Now, of course, the church is the current temple, isn't it? In, uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, we read, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I'm, uh, he's dwelling with us. He's tabernacling with us. For we are the temple of the living God. The other thing about these feasts, including the Sabbath, is they were focused on sacrifice. On sacrificed. But in this day and age, Christ is our sacrifice. Christ is. So if we look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verses uh, 14... Well, there's a number of Hebrews, one to four. For since the law has, was, has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. If you go on to verse 8 to 10, it says, When he said above, meaning Jesus, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices, or sorry, God, you have neither desired nor taken pleasures in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sacrificed, sanctified, sorry, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And finally, we go to verse 14, and the writer of Hebrews says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
Jesus is our sacrifice. It is by him that we are sanctified. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to what? Fulfill it. And that's what he did. He fulfilled the sacrificial purpose. He fulfilled the Sabbath rest. He fulfilled all that uh, all of the he is the fulfillment of all of these feast days in Leviticus 23. And all of those feast days are pointing to Christ. And so we can celebrate the feast days unto the Lord. We can. And I've gone to many, many churches over the course of my ministry of Jewish outreach and done what we call a Christ in the Passover, where we celebrate with the church together the Passover reminding ourselves that Christ is the fulfillment and that the exodus from Egypt was pointing to a greater exodus, a greater um, redemption in Christ. And we can do that with all of the feast days. There's no problem with that. We can celebrate feasts unto the Lord. We can recognize the feasts. We can celebrate the feasts. But you know what? We don't have to. We do not need to celebrate the feasts. And so uh, in Romans uh, chapter 14, 5 to 6, we read, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. We have in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, something not exactly the same, but of, of, of common ilk, uh, where uh, Paul says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, and he's talking to the Gentiles, obviously, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, Jew and Gentile, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And here's what's important. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to to Christ. Why does the substance belong to Christ? Because he's the fulfillment of all these things. And it is always important to remember that. See, I think the confusion comes in understanding, in the understanding of, of three things. One is how do we understand the covenant that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai? Especially, how do we consider it in light of the new covenant? The other is the law. And the covenant and the law of Moses are not the same thing. And we have to recognize that. And how do we consider the law in regards to the new covenant? And then the other issue that seems to get confused is the issue of the chosenness of Israel. Now, we know that Israel was a chosen people, a chosen nation. We're told all, all through the Old Testament all about the chosenness. So how do we understand this? 
Uh, we want to start with the Sinaitic Covenant, the, the covenant that God made on Mount Sinai with the people of Israel through Moses. And before we do that, we have to talk, what is a covenant? Are we all familiar with the idea of covenant? We know what a legal contract is, right? A legal contract says, uh, I, I make an agreement with Benjamin, we write it all down, and we say, if you do this, I'll do this. If I do this, you'll do this. And we have a contract. But if I were to covenant with my brother Benjamin, it's something greater. Is this your wife? Okay. These two have a covenant. They have a covenant because they have made some agreement, but they did it before God, and God was a part of that covenant. Right? And that is the difference between a covenant. But there are two types of covenants in the Scripture. There is what we call a conditional covenant, and then there's an unconditional covenant. We call the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant God made with Abraham, the covenant God made with uh, Noah, even before that, the covenant God made with David, unconditional covenants. And we call them unconditional covenants because there is no condition placed on those who the promise was given. For God to keep his promise. God promises David someone on the throne forever. And David did not have to do anything. It was a response to David's heart, being a man after God's own heart, that God went into this covenant relationship, just like he entered into a relationship with Abraham because of Abraham's faith because of his being a God-fearing man. Same with Noah. But there's no condition by which God can, you know, that the covenant could be broken. Because God was the one who was the promiser without any conditions, and God doesn't break his promise. Amen? But the Mosaic covenant is something completely different. The Mosaic Covenant that was given on Mount Sinai was promised not by God, but by the people of Israel. So in Exodus chapter 19, verse 8, people said, the Israelites said, at at Moses' giving them the law, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And they repeated this in in different form in uh, Exodus 24, 3, and then again in Exodus 24, 7. And this covenant was a covenant of both blessings and curses. You can read them, go to Deuteronomy 31, and you'll see all the blessings and curses uh, that Israel would have had, depending on whether they obeyed or didn't obey. And we know from our passage that we read earlier, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 32, tells us that this covenant is a broken covenant. It's broken. And this actually, this concept is repeated again by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 8, verses 8 to 12. He, he, he re-quotes this. Jeremiah 31 to, 31, uh, to 34. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, 
to 30, 31, 31 to 34, he, God promises a new covenant. And he says that it would not be like the covenant he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Which covenant is that? It's the covenant at Sinai. It's that covenant that would not be anything like the new covenant. The new covenant would be something different. Jesus points to the new covenant when he institutes the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood in Luke chapter 22, verse 20. And Paul, when he talks about the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25, reminds us of what Jesus said there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, we read, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of what? A new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So at the end, after the writer of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, in verse 13 he says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and grows old is uh, is, um, ready to vanish away. We have to understand that the covenant was not a covenant of personal salvation. It had issues of national redemption, but it wasn't, and and it had provision for personal atonement, but it wasn't an atoning covenant. It was really a covenant of service. The main point of the covenant was that Israel should glorify God, and, and God would be glorified to the nations as he lived in the midst of Israel. And the law was to be maintained so that the holiness of Israel would be maintained so that he could be in the presence of Israel. Now we want to look at the law of Moses. The law of Moses is not the covenant. It was the plumb line of obedience to the covenant. But in and of itself, it was not the covenant. The covenant was about ownership of the land as promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was the covenant. He was bringing them to a new land and he would allow them to stay in that land because that promise couldn't be broken. God gave them ownership of the land through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, and he continually repeated it through the prophets. However, we also have to realize that the law determined not the ownership of the land, but the possession of the land. It wasn't that Israel didn't stop owning the land when they were exiled, but they no longer were allowed to possess the land. They owned it but couldn't possess it because God condemned them the curses were, were that for disobedience was brought before them, and that was the end of it. So that was the purpose of the law of Moses. 
Of course, the law also looked towards the, the coming of Christ, Abraham's seed. The law was all about that as well. And so obedience to the law was important for the Israelite. But do you notice that the new covenant has a higher standard of expectation and of obedience than the law of Moses? Think about the Sermon of the Mount. What did Jesus say at the Sermon of the Mount? Well, he said many things. but He said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. You remember that one? And what did Jesus say? He said, but I say to you what? That if you even look at someone with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. Well, that wasn't part of the Mosaic law. That was part of the moral law of God. And if someone who understood the law of Moses rightfully, they would recognize that. But it was not part and parcel of the letter of the law, but it was always part and parcel of God's moral intent of the law. Same with murder. You have heard it said, do not kill, but I say to you, anybody who who calls his brother and says, fool, has murdered his brother in his heart, and is, you know, that's sin. We have a much higher standard as Christians of the, you know, believers in this new covenant, members of this new covenant who have covenanted with God than the Israelites ever had. We are not exempted from the obedience to God's moral law as believers. We're not exempted from it. But we are enabled by the Holy Spirit to accomplish it. And where we fall, and we do fall, is there anyone here who's not a sinner? Even as, as they've come to faith, that haven't sinned since they came to faith. Let me ask that. Anybody here? No? Not me either. No, there's grace though, isn't there? We do make mistakes, but there's grace. We don't live to disobey, but we do at times. And we've got to also remember the law of Moses did not save the Israelites either. Faith saved the Israelite, not the law of Moses. The, the Israelite who brought his sacrifice as a matter of due course, but didn't really love God, didn't really repent of his sin, he had no, uh, no, no, self, no atonement was given to him. It wasn't simply an act, it was a response. Just want to quickly read for you, uh, I'm losing everything, aren't I? Psalm 24, verses 3 to 5. Psalm 24, verses 3 to 5 reads this. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Now, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the Lord of of the God of his salvation. It's not simply doing, it's having clean hands and a pure heart. If you don't have a pure heart, it doesn't matter what you do. It is meaningless. 
Law did not save the Israelites. Moses was an incredible sinner. Abraham was an incredible sinner. Um, Aaron was a sinner. David, King David, was a sinner. What saved them wasn't the law. It was faith. Let's talk about chosenness quickly. I'm getting there. (laughs) Israel had a purpose. They were chosen. They were chosen, as we said earlier, to glorify God as God was in their midst. Again, God said uh, in Leviticus uh, uh, 11, be holy because I am holy. Now let's face it, Israel failed in this role, pitifully. And hence, Jeremiah, again, in Jeremiah chapter 31, Jeremiah, God through Jeremiah can remind everyone, this is a broken covenant. Chosenness is for the service of God. You who are believers in Jesus Christ, born again, are chosen. You are the elect. You are chosen to serve God. Salvation comes from our faith. But our chosenness is about service. Otherwise, why didn't God just bring us up to heaven the moment we, came, we were saved? We have a purpose here on earth to glorify God, to proclaim the new covenant because Jesus is the glory of God. How do we view the law today? Or how should we view the law today? Well, we know again from Matthew five seventeen that Christ fulfilled the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them, not to abolish it, but he's talking about the law and the prophets. If he were simply talking about the law of Moses, he would have said the law of Moses. The law and the prophets isn't about the law, it's about the whole of the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, which he came to fulfill. All the promises pointing to him, he came to fulfill. That's why in Luke uh, 22, at the end of Luke, when he, he's resurrected and there's two poor, poor uh, disciples are heading off on the road to Emmaus and they're all depressed and, and uh, so sad. And he, 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 he finally reveals himself to himself and he st- explains all that was said of him in the law and the prophets. This is the fulfillment he's talking about in this particular passage. The Old Testament is not about the law, we we said. It's about the covenant and salvation leading to Jesus. Those didn't change because of Christ. We do not deny the Old Testament as Christians. We've got to remember that. The Old Testament, its truths are still with us, including the moral truths of God, including ways to understand Jesus. We can't ignore the Old Testament. It is part of this one book called the Bible. But for God's chosen, our righteousness must exceed that, Paul, uh, uh, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, verse 20. We are to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, the f- scribes and the Pharisees were huge law-doers. They were doers of the law. They prided themselves in doing all the law. 
Not only the law that we find in the Bible, but the law that was found in the oral traditions. So how is this supposed to, how is our uh, um, uh, righteousness supposed to exceed that? Because the issue isn't the little detailed laws. The issue is the important things in the Bible. So when Jesus was said, what's the greatest commandment, asked what was the greatest commandment, he didn't say, well, murder, you know, those Ten Commandments, those are the big ones. No, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might and love your neighbor as yourself. Those were the huge things. Those were the things he was concerned about because they are the sum of all the moral truths of conduct in the Old Testament. And so we, as people of God, chosen by God to serve him, to glorify his name, this is what we obey. And Jesus went even beyond that. Love your enemy. Love your enemy. And then he wants us to love one another. Whoa, that's hard. Do you guys love one another? I hope so, because you're commanded to. A new commandment I give you. But the Sabbath, the feast days, the dietary laws, etc., are all part of a particular covenant, the covenant that was given on Mount Sinai that has been broken and it has been fulfilled. And people who want to say that we must celebrate the Sabbath feast days, dietary laws, and so on, they've forgotten that. There's a new covenant. In John chapter 5, verses 39 to 40, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. That was what the covenant was ultimately aiming for this new life in Christ, this new covenant, not like the covenant God made on Mount Sinai. God still has a plan for Israel. We know that. In Zechariah chapter 12, 10, it, uh, God says that, I, I, you know, uh, that they shall gaze upon me, the one whom they have pierced, speaking of Israel, gazing on the, on the, on the Messiah, Jesus. They shall gaze upon me, the one of the, and mourn for him. And it says in uh, 13.1 of Zechariah that on that day, a fount will be opened up to cleanse Israel of its sins. They will come to faith. And that's why in Romans, Paul can say that all Israel will be saved because the call of God is irrevocable. It can't be taken back. There is still a chosenness in the historic plans of God In the meantime, we who are believers, we're not chosen to be Jews. That's the role of the Jewish people. We are chosen to be servants, to serve as ambassadors, as uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, to serve as salt and light, as Jesus asks us to do in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 14. We are those for whom people will ask the reason for the hope that we have. As Peter mentions in 1 Peter 3, 15. We are the ones who are to make, well, 
we, we, well, especially you Gentile believers, are the ones who are to make Israel jealous against the day when they come to the Lord. That is what this covenant, new covenant, is about. It's not about the law. We respond correctly when we love our neighbor, when we love the Lord, when we love our enemies. That is responding. But those things about dietary laws and so on, those are fulfilled in Christ. Part of a broken covenant that is no longer applicable other than the fact that God doesn't change so his moral principles don't change. The Jewish or Hebrew roots movement is not biblical for all the reasons above. It's not. And actually, it's a 20th century movement. We didn't really have Hebrew roots movement before the 20th century. They're not exactly like the Judaizers. The Judaizers were simply saying to the Gentiles, you need to become a Jew. And in some ways, there may be a similarity, but for the Judaizers, for, for the Hebrew roots movement, all of God's people are now Jewish. It's a sort of different thing. And if you go to a, a, the ex, look at the expression, especially in a messianic congregation, and you go to, see, to a worship uh, at, a, at a messianic synagogue, you will primarily see rabbinic forms of liturgy rabbinic expressions of worship. It smacks a lot of later synagogue life than it does a first century biblical life. New movements are new movements. And yet we know that very early on, the church understood what Christianity was about. So we should be very suspicious of anything that comes that's new. Really suspicious. Really, what's happening in the Jewish roots movement, in the Messianic congregations and all of these, especially among the Jewish adherents, is that it seeks to be acceptable within the Jewish community that denies Christ. And that's really where the origin of this all came from in terms of a Jewish context, is Jews wanted to still be looked at as Jews by other Jews. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus was forced outside of the camp, and so we who are going to identify with him are outside of the camp. And that's why, as uh, Brother Vigi said, my right of citizenship in Israel is revoked because I believe in Jesus. That's changing, by the way. There's a lot of legal uh, battles going on. The other problem with it is it often leads to a reintroduction of the separating wall between Jew and Gentile that Crossbright brought down in Ephesians 2.14. And so there's a breaking apart of the one new man created in Christ that, is, that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2.15. It often leads to legalism. I have seen so many of my Jewish messianic brothers head the road to, to legalism. It tends to bring disunity as um, these believers, many of them are believers, true born-again believers, 
but they look down on their brothers and sisters who go to your church, my church, because they think we worship wrong. Many of, uh, uh, of these groups have come to the point of even denying Christ as divine, as Lord. And I can't help but be reminded of 2 Peter 2.1, which says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as they will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And all of this happens because the basis, the scriptural foundations of the Hebrew Roots movement are wrong. They misunderstand the covenant. They misunderstand the law. They misunderstand the chosenness of Israel. So in James chapter 2, verse 10, that passage we, we read near the beginning, James says this in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And I would suggest to you that the Bible makes very clear there's no way to not break the law of Moses. I don't care what kind of a Torah observant person uh, a Pharisee was in the first century, how Torah observant a person is now, how Talmud observant, well, let's keep the Talmud out of it because it's not scripture. You're not going to keep the law. The law was a taskmaster. The law was to teach us that we cannot be righteous unto the law, apart from God making us righteous. If nothing else, you know, if we're going to worship on the Shabbat, the Sabbath, if we're going to worship the feast days, where's the temple that we worship at? There's no temple in Jerusalem. There's no altar to make sacrifices upon. So you've automatically broken the law. There's no way to follow the law of Moses. God made that very certain. And you can't pick and choose. James is very clear on that. You break one law, you break them all. Even with the Holy Spirit in us, as we said, we err. And we're therefore really deserving of judgment. When people say hello to me and they say, how are you? My response is that of Dave Ramsey. I don't know if you know Dave Ramsey, but my response is his because I love it. I'm better than I deserve. I am better than I deserve because I deserve hell. But by the grace of God, through my faith, I have eternal life. So why go backwards as the Galatians did? Paul was really angry at the Galatians. He says, who's bewitched you? Why are you going back to these legal issues? And we are to be aware of false teaching. And we are told that false teachers will come among us, but that they are known by their fruits. And I suggest that the Jewish or Hebrew root movement has very little good fruit. We're not to worry about these things. We really aren't. Because who we associate with 
are those who have faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Truly, worship in spirit and in truth, in true faith, in the true certain hope of salvation. So I can, I mean, there are people in the Jewish Roots Movement who I know are believers, and I can deal with them. If they can't deal with me, well, that's sad. But, but brothers and sisters are brothers and sisters. We here, I don't know what uh, your, uh, all of your theological perspectives are in this church. I may not agree with some of them. But if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you're my brother. And I love you. You can't choose your family. Spiritual or physical. We worry about serving Christ. That's what we're about. Amen? Let's pray. And then I'll clean up my mess. Almighty Father, Lord, there are so many things that come our way. So many competing voices. It's so hard to know what to know, what to believe, what, who to believe, what's right, what's wrong. And all we can do is test all things through your word. And we know that your word, if interpreted in itself, in its full context, if we consider all that the words that you have said, we can know the truth, especially as your Holy Spirit illuminates it. And Lord, I pray that each and every person who has heard my voice, Lord, will not just take my word, but will look into these things, look into the scriptures to determine your voice, Lord, and your word. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to discern the truth. Help us to continue to love you with all our heart, soul, and might. Help us to love our neighbors, love our enemies, love each other. in the beauty of your truth, in the beauty of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen.